Hello and welcome to the latest Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis, the editor of the Investment Trust Handbook, and your host for this weekly review of all the latest news and developments affecting the investment trust sector. My thanks to JP Morgan Asset Management for agreeing to sponsor the podcast, which as a result will now remain free for the foreseeable future. Moneymakers is an independent research and publishing venture with a mission to explain and inform. But I must remind you that for regulatory reasons, nothing you hear from any speaker today should be regarded as constituting individual investment advice. This week has seen mixed messages coming out from the central banks, with the Federal Reserve appearing to signal for the first time that there will be interest rate cuts next year, while the Bank of England and the European Central Bank say they're not yet at the point where they can say the same. Indeed, a minority of members of the Bank of England Monetary Policy Committee voted for the further 0.25% increase in interest rates this week, although they were outnumbered by the majority and rates are being held unchanged in both the UK and Europe. Nevertheless, the Fed is the one with a big bazooka as far as markets are concerned, and the markets duly jumped as soon as they digested the latest comments from the chairman of the Fed, Jay Powell. Market watchers being well used to analyse every single wording change that the Fed puts out. And on this occasion, uh, Mr Powell not doing enough, perhaps, to uh, convince the markets that his message was unintended. The S&P 500 was up 2.5% on the week, uh, Nasdaq slightly more than that, while Treasury yields on US government bonds continue to drop. The benchmark 10-year 30-yield has fallen from a peak of 5% all the way below 4% in little over a month producing uh, significant capital gains for anyone who bought at the high point of the yield cycle. In the UK markets, the effects are more nuanced. The FTSE 250 index and the AIM indices were all up nicely, but the FTSE 100 remained pretty much becalmed. The gills market continued its positive run, however, with every issue rising in price as yields declined, with some longer-dated issues up as much as 7 or 8% in price terms. Only one gilt now offers a gross redemption yield of more than 5%, and roughly 40% are yielding less than 4%, a big change from a few weeks ago. Commodity prices firmed a little, with copper and gold moving higher in dollar terms. The Investment Trust Index, meanwhile, was up 2.5% on the back of these market movements and lower interest rate expectations. The average discount rate, notably, has come in to around 14.5%, which is a significant move from around 19% uh, that we saw at PCAT earlier this year. Gainers uh, outnumbered losers in the performance tables by around 6 to 1, making it one of the best weeks for the sector this year and continuing the revival in performance of the last few weeks. In the podcast this week, I shall be discussing the sector's revival with Anthony Leatham, Head of Investment Trust Research at the brokers Peel Hunt, And also I'll be talking to Will Fraser-Allen, managing partner of Albion Capital, one of the largest providers of venture capital trusts, about the outlook for VCTs as we enter the latter stage of the annual fundraising round for these tax-privileged but higher-risk investment vehicles. There were record inflows into VCTs in 2021 and 2022, more than a billion in each of those two years being raised, but will that continue into this financial year for this often overlooked subsector of the investment trust universe? Well, more on that in a moment. It was another busy week for news and results, too many again to cover in comprehensive detail today, so I will be confining myself to just a few headline notes. The new weekly subscriber email we send to members of the Moneymakers Circle, our sister offering, 
includes my colleague Stuart Watson's comprehensive roundup of all the most important news items, as well as links to all the relevant stock exchange announcements. So do sign up for that if you want to make sure not to miss anything you are interested in. Also, a number of other regular features in this new weekly email. Suffice it to say that the drive towards consolidation in the investment trust sector continues after the big derating of the last couple of years. The board of Aberdeen Diversified Income and Growth, ticker ADIG, which has chopped and changed its strategy more than once in recent years without finding a sustainable formula for success, is proposing a managed wind-down of its mixed public-private portfolio, but warning that it may take several years to complete the disposal of some of its more illiquid holdings. Shares in Triple Point Energy Transition, ticker T-E-N-T, they moved higher this week after the board announced that it was proposing to wind the trust down as well. A circular with more details of that will be sent out early next year. And shareholders, of course, will be given a vote on the outcome. Another trust which has been debating its future is uh, GCP Asset Backed Income, ticker G-A-B-I. It's been quite an active period for this particular trust. The board announced this week that it is going to undertake a strategic review and disclose that it has received two proposals from a US-listed investment company to take it over. This follows the failure of its proposed merger with GCP Infrastructure Income, which is managed by the same management firm. That did not find favour with shareholders, so the board is now considering all other alternatives. Those offers from the US investment company were rejected, or at least the first offer was rejected and the second one was then withdrawn by the American company. So the future of this one very much up for grabs. Another announcement on the consolidation theme came from the boards of Invesco Select, an interesting investment trust which has four different share classes which investors can switch from one to another. That was quite innovative when it was first introduced, but the trust overall remains relatively small. The board has now proposing that it's going to consolidate its four-way share class structure. It's all going to be rolled into a single vehicle, which will follow the global equity income mandate, which is one of the mandates that the trust has. Two of the smaller share classes will be offered a cash exit, and the consolidated vehicle will introduce an enhanced dividend policy to pay out 1% of net asset value each quarter. Even after all this consolidation, the trust is unlikely to be much larger than around $180 million in market capitalization. So whether it remains viable on a longer-term view, even after these moves, remains to be seen. Turning to results, there have been a significant number of announcements, uh, which I just pick out a small handful. You can find the full details, as I say, on the website or in the weekly email. But notable in terms of annual results, JP Morgan China Growth and Income, ticker JCGI, underperforming its benchmark quite significantly by more than around 10% for its latest 12-month period. Henderson European Focus, on the other hand, outperforming its benchmark over the same 12-month period, ending at the 30th September, return there of 24%. The manager of that trust, John Bennett, is announced he's retiring next year, has a good track record. I comment on that in the weekly email. We also heard annual results from JP Morgan Indian, ticker JII, which has a continuation vote coming up. From Schroeder UK Midcap, which outperformed over the last 12-month period, and Polar Capital Global Healthcare, which similarly did well in its latest 12-month figures, up around 4% NAV total return 
about 3% ahead of its benchmark. There were also annual results from JP Morgan Asian Growth and Income, ticker JAGI, which did outperform by around 5% in its latest 12-month period, and from GCP Infrastructure, ticker GCP, which had returned an NAV total return of 3.7%. Plus, there were interims for a number of quite well-known investment trusts, including Polar Capital Technology, ticker PCT, Montanara European Smallers, ticker MTE, Taylor Maritime, the shipping company, ticker TMI, JP Morgan European Discovery, ticker JEDT, which is one of the trusts that uh, Saba Capital have built a stake in and are pressing for change. That one underperformed in the six months interim results for the period to the 30th of September. STS Global Income and Growth, ticker STS, which has proposed a merger with the UK Income Trust managed by its manager, Troy Asset Management. Myton UK Microcap, which underperformed by around 6% in the latest six-month period. Ashoka White Oak Emerging Markets, Gore Street Energy Storage, and Global Smaller Companies Trust, ticker GSCT, where the manager, Peter Ewins, has also announced that he is retiring after a stint of more than 20 years managing that particular trust. Finally, at this point, I might just mention again, if I may, be allowed the indulgence of saying that this week saw the publication of the latest annual edition of the Investment Trust Handbook, which I have the privilege of editing. It came out this week and has already been sold or downloaded in bigger numbers than any previous year, I'm happy to say. Lots of articles this week, a bumper 340-page edition, the largest yet that we've produced, with more than 25 different contributors commenting on the year just gone. Not been a great one, of course, but also looking ahead to some of the opportunities that may now be emerging, including my own thoughts on that. There's a free ebook download if you go to uh, the Moneymakers website or to the publisher's Harriman House, or you can buy a hard copy from any good book supplier. As I noted before, I think in the podcasts, the annual Investment Trust Handbook normally goes off to print around the middle of October, end of October sometimes, depending how diligent I've been. And it's always proved to be quite an interesting time to be writing my thoughts about the year ahead, because typically of the last few years, the markets have tended to change direction uh, around in November, December. And so I was able to point out this year, I think correctly, that even in October, just as we were continuing to see derating across the sector, that there would be good opportunities appearing. Indeed, some of our contributors think that the period we're living through provides some of the best opportunities for future potential investment trusts that we've seen for many years, certainly since going back to the sell-offs that followed the global financial crisis and the pandemic market decline. Well, let's hope so. It's still early days in the recovery for the sector, but there are at least some good reasons, as I'll be discussing in just a moment with Anthony Leatham, why a number of things are coming together to boost the prospects for investment trusts after what's been a couple of really quite tough years. So, as I said, it's been another fascinating week in the investment trust sector and in the markets. We've seen the uh, Federal Reserve change its narrative, at least what it's telling the markets, and uh, now admitting that it expects, or a number of members of the policymaking expect some interest rate cuts next year, which the markets have taken very positively. I'm joined by Anthony Leatham, who's been head of investment trust research at the uh, brokers Peel Hunt since 2015, to talk about that, talk about the markets, and also to talk about buybacks and uh, a number of other recent developments in the sector. So I guess, first off, Anthony, I better just ask you about what happened this week. 
We've heard interest rates on hold in the UK and Europe, but seemingly bullish noises from the Federal Reserve, and the markets have jumped in reaction to that. They have, yes. Uh, thanks, Jonathan. Thanks for having me. Yes, yeah, exciting times. Nice to sort of finish the year, if you like, on a bit of a high note. Uh, it has been tough going out there, particularly for investment trust investors. Macro has had its part to play. But I guess what we've been looking for is even just a glimmer of hope that maybe the inflation data might soften. There might be a reaction to this very sharp rise in interest rates across central banks, you know, in the developed markets. And yeah, just to see a leveling out, a pause has offered the markets some room to maneuver. And actually, from my perspective, it's great to see signs of life within the investment trust sector, particularly certain parts of the universe have responded very positively to this move. You know, we've seen real estate jump. We've seen some of the more beaten up private equity strategies respond positively. A lot of alternatives came under pressure as a result of the rising risk-free rate. And we're starting to see some of that unwind. So it may be early days, but if you look at the one month share price return across the universe and rank by best performing, some trusts are up 25% over the last month. And you look at the year to date returns and it's hard to believe it, but some quite mainstream strategies in share price terms are up sort of 35, 40%. And it doesn't feel like that should be the case, but really what it shows is how much dispersion there's been in the market. So yeah, I welcome any positive macro news because it gives us a chance to recover from what's been a very volatile period. Well, let me ask you one question about that. First of all, obviously, we've seen uh, the share prices marked up, as you say, across the sector, basically, uh, but particularly with significant differentiation. But is that actually reflecting significant levels of volume in the market? Well, I mean, it, it is hard to track. We certainly speak to our market makers and they have mentioned a good few times throughout the course of the year how light volumes have been and that illiquidity, as you say, doesn't help. It almost accentuates some of the moves on light volumes. But, you know, I think what I'm sensing is, you know, investors are coming back to the space and whether it's retail, reading about activity in the market, acting on it. You've got multi-asset funds who've basically been having to deal with net redemptions for many months, if not years, and starting to see their flows stabilize. So we can track their, the fund net flow data, and that seems to be stabilizing. They've been an important supporter of the investment trust world. I think wealth managers continue to be supportive, but again, they've had to deal with a difficult period and, and interact with clients on that. So finding buyers in the tough times has actually been incredibly difficult. I wonder whether now we've reached a stage where discounts really went very wide, noticeably wider. You know, We're talking two standard deviations wider. We've got excitement coming through in the form of M&A, in the form of activism, in the form of strategies, you know, deciding to wind themselves down. And perhaps, you know, I can see a coming together of a variety of catalysts. It's not just the macro, but actually a sort of a greater involvement in the space. So as I say, I welcome it. And hopefully we'll see volumes pick up from here. Can I just ask you before we move on from that on some narrow technical point about liquidity in the investment trust sector? There's been this uh, announcement recently from the Prudential Regulation Authority, known as the PRA, which has been talking about the amount of regulatory capital for trading in the shares of investment trust. Perhaps you could explain what that was. And then is that of any significance in terms of liquidity in the market? Oh, I think it is. So as a broker, you know, we have to hold capital against positions that we take in order to, to make markets in instruments. For trading companies, that capital requirement is quite a lot lower than for investment companies or has been. 
And that could prove difficult, particularly for smaller houses who are looking to make markets and investment companies. So, so leveling the playing field, it's an expression I seem to find myself using quite a lot. You might even get onto fee disclosure, but that topic keeps rumbling. But the point is, if we can level the playing field between trading companies and investment companies in terms of that capital requirement, that is a real positive. It's not something that's very obvious to the outside investor looking in, but it really makes a difference. It could increase the number of market participants, could increase liquidity, it could bring down the cost of trading. But it's taken a while to get here, and I think it's a really welcome development. So just to be clear here, so what they're saying is that if you're making a market in investor trust shares, you have to provide twice as much capital as you would do if you were just making a market in an ordinary listed share. Is that roughly what it is? In an ordinary trading company. That was the situation. Obviously, now we're looking at a situation where they'll be sort of treated equally. Right. Well, let's just then bring in that cost disclosure issue. We've again seen signs of progress there. We've had these uh, parliamentary activity in the Lords and in the House of Commons as well. And the government has put out something and the uh, FCA has also been prodded into action. Uh, but we haven't actually seen what the final outcome is going to be. But what's your assessment of how that situation is developing and how significantly it might change if these new measures are brought in? Yeah, it's a strange one because I get quite frustrated with the fee debate. As a purist analyst of investment company performance, I assess things performance net of fees. So for me, the whole thing is in the price, if you like, performance versus benchmark, performance versus peers. If a fund charges 2% and another one charges half a percent, you're looking at it on a sort of equal basis and judging the efficacy of the strategy based on the fees taken. Aside from that very purist view, obviously, there's been a lot of scrutiny around value for money and how much investment strategies cost. And there is quite a wide dispersion out there. But I'm also pleased to see that this progress has been made because it did feel at one point, particularly when you know we were speaking to investors, the buy side, and they were saying that we can't own that because it's too expensive. And yes, optically, the numbers that have been picked out from, say, a, you know, a Prips Kids document might look particularly high. But again, the net outcomes have rewarded investors. So if we can look at the way it's disclosed but also avoid issues around potentially double counting and not really allowing investment trusts to compete on an equal footing with other investment options because of this optical fee burden, I think we could be in a really good place. And actually, you look at all these things together, they're potential catalysts for the investment trust market. It's not just a discount story anymore. It's structural changes. It's potentially regulatory changes. It's regulatory capital changes. You know, it feels like it's coming together around the same time. And that could be really important because at the moment, that fee disclosure debate has kind of put the industry on a bit of a back foot. And you look at the response from some of the retail platforms, and that is ultimately where it could go, is that things are, are deemed too expensive and you know investors aren't allowed to participate. So it's great to see progress on all fronts, really. And I think the FCA has said that they might be providing a, a further update this month. We'll see. Yeah, you'd be a brave person who bet that the FCA was going to do something sooner than they'd indicated rather than later than they'd indicated. Now, that's my personal view, of course. I'm not associating you with that at all. In general terms, I think maybe there's an issue that the regulators have not, to the extent the government's involved them as well. They haven't until recently fully appreciated quite how important the investment company sector is, particularly in terms of alternatives and so on. So do you think there's a sense that maybe investment trusts have kind of fallen by neglect, if you like, from the regulators, uh, and maybe that's being put right now? 
I wouldn't go quite as far as that. I think I'd maybe take a more positive view, which is that investment trusts have been around for a long time. And we were celebrating amazing milestones for things like F&C Investment Trust. But over that time, we've seen an evolution from conventional equity-focused strategies right through to more esoteric, perhaps, alternatives. But ones that can make a really big difference, mobilise capital. It's a closed-ended structure, so the capital is very long-term. It's just what a lot of industries need. It removes the concerns around the liquidity mismatch. But that evolution, particularly that last bit, has only happened in the last few years. So it's quite easy for an investor who's who maybe not been tracking that as closely as we have to think, well, investment trusts are just you know, over there in the corner collecting dust. Well, actually, we're very relevant. And it's great that there is that recognition coming through that the structure and its traded nature can offer a real solution, but can also mobilise capital into important areas of the future. Having said that, we could say the last couple of years, we have seen sort of capital going out of the sector rather than coming into the sector. There's been barely no IPOs and not a huge amount of issuance, some issuance by existing companies. Do you think, generally speaking, that, let's generalise first of all, that investment companies are doing enough to deal with the discounts that have emerged to the extent that they're not being driven by these other factors we've mentioned already? Yeah, I think boards and companies and managers are taking discounts very seriously. You know, I think a lot has been written and said about the quality of governance within the UK Investment Trust community. I actually think having met with a lot of boards over the last couple of years, you know, the challenging times, boards are very much on top of this. They're looking at it all the time, assessing the, the options available to them to stimulate better performance address the discount, maybe use some of the mechanisms at their disposal, whether it's looking at the dividend or the use of leverage, you know, including maybe making changes to the investment strategy to make it a better place to deliver the returns that investors need. So I'm a big advocate of that dynamism, that that decision-making, that constant process of assessment. Buyback's a difficult decision. You know, some trusts have done it almost in their sleep. They haven't really thought about it. It's just, if we go on a discount, we buy back. You know, some are offering even a zero discount policy, managing it very tightly around par. For other trusts, it's maybe a bit more nuanced. So if, for example, you're quite a small trust or the underlying investments you've made are in particularly illiquid parts of the market or in asset classes that don't lend themselves to being liquidated quickly to release capital. Some have set a target for discount control Others have offered slightly more flexible language, let's say, in the prospectus around what they can and can't do. But right now, we've just been through what is essentially a repeat of post-GFC from a discount perspective. So let's say every board should be looking at what they can do to mitigate or to narrow discounts, but also mitigate discount volatility. And that's as much a defending the discount conversation as it is an asset allocation decision because of how wide some of the discounts have gone. Well, you've been tracking buybacks. What's the most important thing that share buybacks achieve in terms of the analysis you've been doing? Yeah, so we published a note last month that looked at the data, and it's a repeat of a piece of analysis we did um, earlier in the year in, in March time. And at that stage in November, when we published, the total volume of buybacks at that stage was about three billion pounds, so a sizable amount. And two point six of that three billion came from equity trusts. And I think what our analysis was, was trying to work out was, are they active? Yes. Are they working? Potentially. I, I think the two areas we identified as being uh, most sensitive to that buyback activity was the reduced discount volatility. 
The other interesting observation was that those trusts that were buying back in decent size, but also on regular occasions, often traded at narrower discounts than their peers. So for an equity trust, doing that kind of regular buyback activity, the average discount was two percentage points narrower. So an improvement there for the alternatives is actually four percentage points narrower. So I think there's good evidence that a concerted effort to narrow the discount through the buyback mechanism can be effective. Obviously, lots of considerations to take into account. But there's also this asset allocation decisions. I I think boards and managers have been talking about what is the best move from here with any cash that we accumulate? Is it to distribute it out in the form of a dividend, to reinvest it into the portfolio at the current valuation levels, or to buy back our own shares? You know, thinking about it as almost an investment decision. So we're finding that A, the investment trust industry has been very active. You see it day to day in the RNS announcements. And those that really do commit to a strategy are reaping the benefits in terms of a, a narrower discount. For example, one standout is Worldwide Healthcare, which has bought back an awful lot of shares without, in the shorter term, appearing to do much on the face of it to uh, improve its performance in share price term. But you would think that for them, that's been a worthwhile thing to do. Absolutely, with the caveat that it's appropriate for the strategy and the underlying. You know, the difficulty will be that scale matters more so today than ever with the consolidation that we've seen in the wealth management industry. So actually, if by undertaking a large buyback program, you shrink below a certain threshold, either in size or average daily traded value, you might risk putting yourself in that kind of danger zone of being too small and too hard for the bigger wealth management firms to hold. So it's a balancing act. I think with Worldwide, it's a very big vehicle. The portfolio is broadly liquid enough to cope with that. There are pockets where obviously they'll be in the small mid-cap names or there might be more emerging biotech stories and they wouldn't want to liquidate those positions. So it's always a bit of a balancing act. But I think yeah, Worldwide has, has certainly been one of the most prolific in terms of total bought back and number of days active in the market. I guess one of the other issues, if you're looking at some of the alternatives, for example, many of which have been trading on very wide discounts, you know, 30 40%, that sort of thing. And given the kind of things that they do, perhaps you might make an exception for private equity. But in general terms, from a purely mathematical point of view, it would be difficult to improve on the kind of return you make by buying back your shares if we have the liquidity. Certainly, if you have the liquidity. And, you know, as you said, private equity is perhaps a special case here because you are looking at quite a long-range set of commitments that you've made and future capital requirements, you need to think quite carefully about how to allocate that. But you're right, when you get into that 30-40% discount level, it presents itself as a compelling investment decision versus what else you could put the money into. But ultimately, say we're juggling lots of different competing priorities, some of those alternative strategies have presented themselves to investors as being a very dependable income-generating solution so again, the use of capital, the reinvestment of that capital will have one eye on do we do a buyback or not and one eye on maintaining that dividend and dividend growth story. So yes, it's, it's very much a stock-specific set of decisions. Because obviously one question I was going to follow on and ask you was, let's assume for the moment that, that we do see a recovery, both in ratings and so we say in the equity markets for a period at least, would you expect, other things being equal, that some of the trusts which have suffered most over the last couple of years would be the ones who would gain most? Yeah, broadly speaking, we are seeing that come through. I guess 
one thing I try and keep in mind when I'm looking at that sort of response to a more positive environment, the beta, if you like, to the recovery, is what caused the derating in the first place? And is that a more cyclical response or perhaps a response to the macro, which could mean revert? Or is there something fundamentally in the portfolio that's caused that derating to go further? For example, an asset has come into difficulty or the strategy itself has got into a kind of very highly geared situation. So there could potentially be some value traps out there at the very deeply discounted end. But more broadly, you know, I look at that share price data I talked about earlier, and I see that a lot of the very beaten up, deeply discounted strategies have responded very positively. And that's great news because what we don't want is that volatility and discounts to have put off a whole swathe of buyers and not rewarded them with that kind of recovery potential. The other thing I would add is that scale is important. So initially, we're going to see that relief rallying across a lot of those those discounted names, but actually size will matter in that scenario. So you know, maybe that you look across a peer group and there are four or five options trading at 20, 25 discounts, but only two of them are over a billion pounds in market cap and trading decent average daily volume. Those will be the ones that might get more incremental buying from investors because of scale alone. So I'm just looking at the list of trusts that have done best over the last couple of months. And at the top, we've got things like Shehalian and Chrysalis. Shehalian's quite a big fund. I mean, that's got a decent market cap. Chrysalis, a bit smaller, had some issues. Some of the battery storage trusts are bigger than some people realise, I think. That's been an interesting one. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that sector. We heard this week from one of the battery companies that the national grid has now effectively made some changes. It will mean it will take more intermittent supply from battery storage systems. That may be positive, and those shares have performed very well. Yeah. Now, in that space, we cover Gresham House Energy Storage, and we've been highlighting that. In fact, they spoke at our conference last month, and we were hearing about how this national grid ESO, this new trading platform, could be transformative for battery storage participation, particularly in that balancing mechanism. It's been tough, actually, for battery storage. You know, we know structurally how important battery storage is to the energy transition theme, but there have been events that have led to dividends being uncovered, perhaps performance coming in below expectations, and a kind of a, an inability to maximize the revenue opportunity. There's also big construction pipelines out there that have been, you know, for whatever reason, delayed. So I think for us, the way we look at it is this is a deferral of what the positive steps that we've seen come through. Um, there's a pipeline of capacity coming on. And ultimately, I think the national grid's move and delivery of this ESO platform is yet another sign of commitment to the use of battery storage within the broader delivery of electricity to the grid and to the home. So we really like the space. It was at a premium. Now you've got things like Gresham House Energy Storage trading on a 26% discount to that end September NAV, but with the potential for an improvement across all of those you know, key metrics that have held it back so far. We can't say this for certain, but not everybody's going to benefit, of course, from that. We heard this week from Triple Point Energy Transition, another investment trust which has some exposure to battery storage market. The orderly realisation of assets is what they're sort of aiming to do, return the capital to shareholders that they might also look at other strategic options, even if this uh, new uh, happy state of affairs comes around, as you say. Yes, and actually we've seen a couple of examples of trusts deciding to put themselves into an orderly wind-down. There's a tough decision to make. 
you know, particularly if the manager and the board have been there you know, since launch. On paper, it looks a really exciting strategy, but for whatever reason, hasn't worked or hasn't got to scale. You know, it's unfortunately a function of this, I guess, this point in the cycle. Not only are we seeing M&A, but we're also seeing wind downs. We're seeing a sort of net shrinkage of trusts in the market. I think if participants remain engaged and still have the need for this type of exposure, you're going to get a volume of money concentrated into a smaller number of trusts. Maybe medium term, that's another catalyst for investment trust space to power the recovery. Talking of some of the more uh, volatile instruments out there, I thought I might ask you a question about uh, Digital 9 infrastructure, ticker DGI 9. I should point out that Peel Hunt is one of the joint brokers to this trust, but uh, what has been noticeable to the outside observer is that the share price has been bouncing up and down all over the place, and uh, it seems to go up one day and down a lot the next day, and the board is taking steps to try and deal with the issues they've got. What, if anything, can you tell us about that situation? I've had a lot of conversations on Digital 9 infrastructure. It's interesting. It's one of two trusts in the digital infrastructure space alongside Cordiant Digital. And Digital 9 has some very interesting assets, data center business, transmission business, a subsea fiber cable business. And leading up to this period of volatility, the investment trust really was looking to sell part or all of the data center business, which is called Vern Global. And in the most recent set of announcements, they have told the market they've agreed a sale. It will not only release capital, but also allow investment trust to pay down a large proportion of the revolving credit facility. So it will de-gear the story. And I guess with some of these high growth businesses, particularly in the data center space, there's a lot of capex associated with that. So in fact, Digital nine infrastructure will have less of a, if you like, immediate capital need to fund that kind of growth, uh, given that the sale will happen. I think it's due to happen in Q1 of next year. With all that volatility in the share price, we've tried to go back and look at more like the sort of some of the parts analysis. So what's in that NAV? Can we run different scenarios on a worst case, a bear case, a base case, and a bull case scenario for what the position are worth and how much cash will come back into the vehicle? And the range of outcomes is quite wide. I think the last time I looked at our sheet, Digital 9 was trading at around 70% discount at 7-0. So really, almost it feels like there's optionality here in the wake of quite so much negativity. But if we think it can mean revert to more like a 40% discount once the Vern Global transaction goes through and people can really kind of properly assess what the business is worth. Our base case NAV estimate is around 86p, a lot of moving parts in there, so there could be different outcomes, but we're looking at sort of 70% upside potential from here based on our estimated numbers. So it's a complicated scenario. It's one that has got leverage, it's got uncertainty, but ultimately we think there are some valuable businesses and valuable assets within this portfolio. And at the moment, the market is happy to almost write all of the next biggest holding beyond the data centers, Arkiva. That position is in the price today being written down to zero. And we just think that's overdone. And it happens. It happens in our world a lot. You get these inefficiencies. You know, it's difficult to find a price. It's a risky situation. So much easier to sell and sell first and ask questions later. But I think at this stage, it's high risk. I would caveat that completely. But there are certainly enough assets within the portfolio to start to build a few scenarios which aren't 
as catastrophic as the shares would suggest. And of course, I guess one of the questions you've heard from those who do invest in it is, well, if you do sell Vern Global, which is, you could argue, your best business, then what's left? Is that really worth something or not? But anyway, let's move on. And just in terms of then, finally, of the consolidation within the sector, you mentioned that we've obviously got Saba Capital, amongst others, and a number of value investors in the sector who are pressing for change in a number of cases. We're not quite sure in all cases what it is exactly they want, but that's going on all the time. And we have seen a succession of proposed mergers and exits and wind downs, as you say. Do you think this process has, has run its course yet? Not yet, no, is the short answer. I think it's really interesting to look at the deals and the transactions that happened during the course of the last 12 months. Quite a lot of them have seen this trust from the same house, if you like, some sort of consolidation process where bringing two sort of mid-sized trusts together could future-proof the combined entity. We've also seen, as you say, the discount players joined by a potentially more disruptive participant in the form of cyber capital. Quite challenging to track exactly what they're up to, but we think they've got positions in around 30 trusts at the moment. And if you look down that list, about half of those have got some sort of catalyst event. So we track catalysts quite carefully. It's a catalyst event in the next three years. And that could include things like continuation votes, tender offers, annual redemption facilities, even triggered discount control mechanisms. And I guess the test case was European Opportunities Trust, which gives us a sort of sense of what Saba might be looking to do in terms of their brand of, of activism and involvement. But if we look at the structure of the market at the moment, about 50% of conventional investment trusts, those more equity-facing strategies, have market cap of below 300 million. Now, 300 million five or six years ago was a big number. Uh, today, it's arguable where the line is drawn for some of the larger participants in our market. But it's a similar story across the alternatives. So could we see a situation where a universe of 300 investment trusts becomes a universe of 200 investment trusts? It's finger in the air guesstimates at the moment. But the combination of boards being willing and able to be front-footed with decisions around the future of the vehicle, houses recognising that scale matters and Perhaps, you know, the scope for, for consolidation and mergers in, in that sense. And pressure being exerted by activists and more discount-focused players really agitating for change. And then some trust strategies like JP Morgan Global Growth and Income really leading the way as, you know, sort of consolidators in chief, helping to, again, get that thought process, push it up the agenda in board meetings. You know, what do we do about this strategy? We've tried to address the discount performance isn't really shining forth and we've got to do something. So you can imagine a lot of these conversations happening. So I, I don't think we're through it. I think there's actually more to come. I'll come back to the point. I'm glass half full. I'm positive on investment trust. I would be. It's the world I live in. But there's a lot of potential catalysts for our area at the moment. And it helps that your entry point now is a, quite a low ebb in terms of discounts. So I guess the, the next best thing you'd want for Christmas would be the opportunity to launch some new ones, but that will still be some way away. I mean, there's only, what, about 20 trusts trading at a premium now, so it's going to be quite an uphill struggle. But uh, who knows how quickly these things can change. This is the top of my letter to Santa. New issuance, new launches, but we'll see what you can come back with. Okay, so that was Anthony Leatham, Head of Investment Trust Research at the broker Peel Hunt. 
So we are coming up to Christmas and we've just had the autumn statement and it seemed to me like a good week to have a conversation about VCTs or venture capital trusts. We don't often talk about VCTs on the Investment Trust podcast. Maybe we should do it more often. But it seems like a good time to do that because the most recent autumn statement made some tax changes. Those are always relevant to uh, what happens to the VCT world. And of course, it's coming up to the main season in which uh, VCTs are marketed to investors. So I would like to be joined this week by uh, Will Fraser-Allen who is the managing partner of Albion Capital, one of the bigger VCT providers, and also, as it happens, chairman of the Venture Capital Association, the industry trade group, if you like. He's that chairman until the end of the year, he tells me. So, well, very good to have you on the podcast. We're going to talk about VCTs generally, and then we might mention the fact that you've got the launch coming up uh, this week. By the time you hear this on the podcast, this will have been published and you can have a look at the prospectus for the latest Albion Capital VCTs. So, Will, first of all, let's just start with a basic reminder for investors, perhaps general investment trust investors who haven't looked at the venture capital trusts or VCTs as we know them. Just remind us very briefly, the first instance, what it is that VCTs do, and then we'll ask you to summarize the various advantages you get by investing in them. Uh, first of all, it's great to be with you today. Thank you very much for inviting me onto your podcast so VCTs are a federal investment company that specifically invest in young, innovative growth companies. And to encourage retail investors to do that, they come with some tax benefits, eventually tax incentives to encourage people to do it. So we are out there looking for some of the most exciting companies that we believe will grow. They are typically small when we first invest, but with a view that they can grow significantly. It is structured as an investment company, hence they form part of the universe of investment companies. And there's about 6.1 billion currently invested across the VCT. So it's a decent chunk of capital. In terms of the main benefits, when you invest, you get 30% upfront tax relief against the amount you invest. So effectively, you pay 70p in the pound for your share in the VCT. And that is delivered through a reduction in your tax bill at the end of each year. Also, any income we pay through dividends is tax-free, so that's very attractive. And then finally, any capital gains made also fall outside, are tax-free, fall out of your tax bill. So it's a set of tax benefits to encourage people to back some of the most uh, exciting small companies in the UK. So essentially what if you do, as far as new investments are concerned, you're investing in early stage, potentially growth companies, which are by definition higher risk. They may well succeed or they may not succeed. And the VCTs have been going for, uh, well, well over 20 years, maybe is it 30 years now, something like that? Since 1995, 96, so they're, they're a well-established investment vehicle. Well-established investment vehicles. And periodically, there's always rumours or fears that the the tax benefits, which you mentioned, will be taken away. But successive governments have continued to keep those tax advantages. And I guess that remains the case after the autumn statement. There's been no change to the regime. In fact, it's been extended beyond for a further period, I think. That's right. So because of the nature of the tax incentive, there are various review points of the scheme to make sure that it's still delivering what they're intended to do. And what was announced in the autumn statement is a further extension of the scheme for a further 10 years to 2035. So that was excellent news for the entrepreneurs we back, for our investors, but also we as managers. So we've got certainty over that, the scheme for the next 10 years, which is great. Though presumably it could, in theory, be possible for a change in government. They could actually change the rules at some point. But you would be hoping that they wouldn't do that. And uh, it's sufficiently bipartisan, this particular approach to supporting high-growth companies. Yes, no, absolutely. We've enjoyed support from both sides of the political divide over those 25 plus years. And certainly the discussions that I've been having wearing my Venture Capital Trust Association hat 
with both Conservative and Labour parliamentarians are they are both supportive. And in fact, currently we have a situation where both parties see the growth of small companies as an important part of delivering overall economic growth. So we do enjoy support, which is fantastic. That is not to say things can change, but certainly where we sit now, it's a positive supportive environment. And over the years, the regulations surrounding VCTs have changed a number of times. They were tightened, particularly, I think, back in the mid-2010s, they were tightened because some people felt that it was too lax, the regime. So the, the rules around what you have to do in order to qualify to become a VCT, can you just remind us what those are in broad terms? So the way the rules change is really to reflect public policy. So what happened in, as you said, about 2015 onwards, is the rules were changed to direct us at innovative young companies. So the types of companies we're investing in, they typically have less than 250 employees, for example. There are certain rules around balance sheets, but they are designed to be relatively young companies and they are typically innovative, i.e. they are creating something, whether that's a new product, whether that's a new business model, whether that's new technology. So it is very much a view of successive governments that they want the UK to be a place of innovation and somewhere where one can successfully set up innovative companies. Well, we certainly need that. We are tend to be a kind of high inflation, low productivity economy, so the more the better. And that's obviously what VCTs are designed to achieve. I think it's fair to say, however, that some of the older, more established uh, VCTs, the ones that have succeeded, they still have the benefit of being able to continue to own companies they may have bought under a previous, less restrictive regime. Is that a fair comment? I think that's becoming less and less the case, actually, John. We're now 2023. We're now some years beyond that. So many of those companies have now been sold out of the portfolio. So typically, if you look at Albion's portfolio, it is very large extent investments that have been made under the new regime. So yes, there are some uh, if you want to call them legacy investments around the industry, but it's not a significant factor anymore. The portfolios you see are very much uh, high-growth, innovative companies generally. So you are actually getting what the government wants you to get. So, of course, nobody should ever invest uh, for tax reasons alone. We all know that. That's a timeless mantra and uh, remains true today. And it's not my job to do your marketing for you, but uh, it's fair to say, I think, that the way that the tax regime has developed over the last few years has made VCTs even more attractive for people with savings to invest who've already used up their ISA allowances and so on and made pension contributions. You wouldn't disagree with that statement that the tax burden is not only rising, but it's also uh, reaching more people than before, therefore bringing more potential investors into your remit. I don't suppose you would disagree with that. No, that's absolutely right. But your point on pensions is particularly relevant because as pensions have become more restrictive and those on higher incomes simply can't invest anything meaningfully into pensions. So this is where we have seen people using VCTs as part of a broader retirement strategy. They're not so much an alternative, they're more a supplement to what other retirement savings that people have done. So you're right. So if you look at the amount raised by the sector Last year, it was about £1.1 billion, which is why we are now creating a, a reasonably sizable VCT universe. Right. So obviously, every year we have offers from established uh, VCT providers and also uh, very rarely, occasionally, some newcomers to the sector. I think the VCT Association, you're telling me, represents the 12 largest uh, managers in the universe who account for more than 90% of the assets in the venture capital trust world. So you have a, a good picture of what's going on. What is the outlook for fundraising this year? As you said, the last two years have been record years for VCT uh, fundraising. They've also seen not the most ideal market conditions, shall we say, equity markets are sell off bond markets until just now. They've taken a dive as well. So what do you think the outlook is for the uh, VCT fundraising this year? Will the continued tax advantages outweigh the fact that uh, performance has been not as good as in some other years? 
I think um, it's quite early in the fundraising season to be definitive and making forecasts is always a dangerous game. But what I would say is, uh, as I look at how much has been raised across the sector, um, which is currently about 250 million, bear in mind, the season goes through to the end of the tax year. You know, that does suggest to me that it'll be down on last year. How much down? Not sure, but I think it would be surprising if, if there wasn't some impact to the broader macroeconomic environment that we are in, not least of which is rising interest rates, which inevitably will lead to some reduction in demand. However, the tax incentives are designed to encourage people to invest. And history tells us that people continue to invest through the economic cycles, recognising that venture capital is a long-term game. VCTs are a long-term investment. And perhaps an important point to highlight to your listeners is that one of the rules around investing in VC is that you must hold your VC shares for at least five years. And that's the quid pro quo for getting the tax incentive. So this designed to be a long-term product. And, you know, people that do invest in venture capital come into it knowing that they will see cycles as they invest. But importantly, what history tells us is that when you're investing in more difficult macroeconomic times, often that brings about the most exciting opportunities. Indeed, and we're all hoping that's going to be the case. How would you collectively sum up the performance of VCTs in the last two years? We've obviously seen small cap stocks uh, sell off quite significantly with the higher interest rates. That's to be expected, I think. They're not necessarily the, the scale and extent of it. And by definition, VCTs are smaller company investments, and they're also, a lot of them are private, they're not listed. And private equity has also taken a beating. So what has the performance of VCTs generally been like? And I guess there's some wide extremes in there as well, but uh, how would you characterize it? I think if I was going to characterize it, I think certainly the last 12 months to 18 months, what you've seen is lower returns than we've had historically for, for all the reasons that we know. And in terms of what that, in very broad terms, because as you say, it's a, it's a big universe to generalize over. But I think the better performing ones are mildly positive, And then some have shown up to 10, 15% declines. But on average, they've actually held up really quite well. And I think that reflects the fact that these companies are still continuing to grow. So although the multiples being applied to in valuation terms have come down, they've been balanced by the underlying growth of those investing companies. So the picture is not disastrous by any means. I think it's quite encouraging and it's absolutely what I would expect at this point in the cycle. Is it fair to say that because a lot of people who do invest in VCTs are attracted by the tax benefits, that on the whole, there isn't anything like as much volume of trade in the shares of VCTs as there are if you had a a kind of typical smaller company trust or some such thing? That would be correct, would it? So in terms of, therefore, you still have discounts to NAV and so on in in a VCT, but there isn't presumably that much liquidity. So it's quite hard to actually determine whether these discounts are valid or not. VCs do work differently to investment trusts. And the reason for that is that point about liquidity. Firstly, you've got investors hafting to hold the shares for five years. So clearly, you've got no sellers in that group, or it would be unusual to sell because you would lose your tax relief. The reality is the secondary market in VCs is, is pretty negligible. And the reason for that is that the typical buyer of VCT shares, if people wish to sell them, is through buybacks by the VCTs themselves. Um, and those are typically... Uh, made at a, at a 5% discount to NAV. In general terms, there are variances, but if you look at a, at a general theme, and in terms of how the VC managers operate, they run their liquidity. They make sure they've got sufficient liquidity to fulfill the buyback demand. So it allows investors in VCs to know that they can sell at a, effectively a 5% discount when they want to. 
And it means that by definition, the discount stays at a pretty steady 5% because that's the price that we, we pay for them. So it is different. So you don't see these big, big discounts that you see elsewhere in an investment company because effectively the buyer of shares is the VCT itself. Right. When you say that they will buy them back, is that guaranteed or is it just what you do by convention and by for the purposes of uh, keeping your business <laughs> growing and sustainable? No, good question. No, it's, it's by convention. It's more say a commitment per se, but many of us have been running these buyback programs for well over a decade now. And it's very much part and parcel of how we run VCTs. And it's very important for all shareholders to be able to sell when they want to. The reality, Jonathan, is actually the level of buybacks in VCTs is, is very low. And the reason for that is people do buy them with a very much a long-term view and they do enjoy the other piece of the equation, which is worth talking about briefly, is the income that they generate. I was going to come on to that. Yeah, I was going to come on to the yield. Exactly. But just to finish on that point, have you actually seen any increase in, in buybacks over the last couple of years because of the performance of the markets and therefore the knock-on effect on valuations? So I can speak for Albion. That's not data that we collect as an industry. Certainly, Albion, the answer to that is no. It's a very consistent level in terms of percentage of NAV and has been for many years. So people do tend to buy these. They know they've got to hold them for five years, but many of our investors, we've got investors who've been with us 25 years from when the first one was launched. They do buy them as part of a longer term strategy and as part of a sort of building up a retirement pot. Right. So now let's talk about dividends, because as you say, I mean, one of the attractions is that dividends are uh, free of tax in most cases, I think, free of income tax anyway. And uh, dividend allowance anyway has gone down a lot for anybody who invests in listed shares. So the relative attraction is high. And indeed, is it fair to say that most of the total return you get from a VCT is likely to come in the form of a dividend over a period of time? You'll get more from the dividends than you will from capital growth. Obviously, there'll be exceptions, but as a generalization, that's a fair summary, is it? I think it is, but I'll go on and just talk about Albion briefly, but just the broader point. So quite often, the dividend target, if you like, for a VCT is around 5% of NAV, of the net asset value of the fund. And that's become the sort of level that investors feel comfortable holding shares for the long term. So that's what I was alluding to just now, is that you know, tax-free income is attractive. And at the level of around 5%, it gives investors a reason to want to hold these shares. In terms of how much of the return comes through dividend, I'd agree with you, most of it is. If, if you look at the Albion BCTs in terms of the simple annual return that we've had over the last 10 years is 7%. So that's effectively the experience of the shareholder, and that's against our 5% target. So that gives you a bit of a sense of where the allocation between capital and income, if you like, for the Albion BCTs. On top of that, of course, the investor has also had that upfront tax relief of 30%. So, you know, a decent tax-free return, which which I think is why people, you know, like to hold them. Right. And so then we come on to the question of, well, if I want to invest in a VCT, I've taken my advice and I know that I've uh, got money that I can afford to put at risk here because it is high-risk investing. And I've maximized my ISA allowance and I've done all my financial planning and all the rest of it. So how then do I go about actually deciding which investment trust to invest in? And should I be adopting a portfolio approach or should I just be going for the ones with the best long-term track record or some other reason? How should we be thinking about approaching this issue of investing in a VCT? Okay, so I'm wearing an industry hat here. So I, you know, talk about relative performance of VCTs is probably outside my remit. But I mean, there are various ways you can research VCTs. So the AIC, of which all the VCTs are members, do have performance data on their website. And you can look specifically at VCTs individually and as a, as a group. So that's a good way of getting a, a sense of the availability, what, what ones are available and 
some broad performance targets. Now, I would suggest that the net asset value return is probably the easiest way to look at that to get consistency across the group. Uh, and then in terms of how you access it, as we've discussed, as a sort of fundraising season, which is roughly from September through to uh, the end of the tax year, 5th of April, most of the houses come out with a, an annual fundraising. Uh, they all publish the prospectus of the related material on, on their websites. So that would be my suggestion, how to go about it. In terms of whether you hold it as a portfolio, that's going to be for investors to decide. But certainly talking to many of the wealth managers and financial advisors who do talk about these uh, products to their clients, they do tend to suggest that you invest your money across a small number each year so that you get that diversification across manager. We haven't mentioned the fact that you can invest up to 200,000 a year, I think, if you're that well resourced, shall we say. <laughs> you can do up to 200,000 a year, so that's a relevant factor here, but uh, obviously you do it across a range of trusts, as you said. They do range a lot in size, don't they? I mean, at the top we have perhaps the best well-known is Octopus Titan VCT, which has had a number of successes with some well-known investments it's made that have turned out to be very successful. That has a market cap about a billion, but the next one is also an Octopus VCT. That's around 360 million. And below that, we've got quite a range between, what, 100 million and 200 million, something like that is quite common. But presumably also, there's quite a few which over the years have uh, have disappeared because they haven't actually produced the goods. So is there a kind of uh, Darwinian process at work here, shall we say? Yes, there is. I mean, I don't think size is everything in the world of VCTs. So you don't have the same liquidity issues you, you have in terms of size that you might have with an investment trust. As we've discussed, the liquidity is generated by the VCT itself. So it's more about making sure VCTs have got sufficient scale that the costs are sensibly spread across a decent asset base. Certainly when I look at them from the Albion perspective, you know, targeting 100 million and a bit more gives you a decent size trust. But there isn't that same pressure that you might think there is in terms of size for size's sake. So they come in all shapes and sizes, though, in terms of their classification. We have some which invest in AIM, their AIM VCTs. Uh, there are some that invest in sort of multi-purpose, if you like, generalist, and then there are some which invest in very specialist things. Uh, just as an example, I think you have six uh, VCTs in your stable. What's the difference between them? How would I distinguish between one and uh, the next one? Increasingly, they're looking very similar. They all have the same investment strategy now. Uh, historically, when ruled differently, they had slightly different focuses, but the way it's moved is they're all doing the same thing now. So I'll sit increasingly look quite similar. The difference is gives rise to their allocation or their weighting to individual investments. Because effectively, when we make an investment, the trusts invest on the basis of their respective cash balances. So the real difference is their weighting to certain investments. But broadly, you know, many people tend to buy all six VCTs, which is the sort of default option when you invest. But sort of more broadly, you're absolutely right. If you look at the industry, really, it falls down now to two core categories, which is the AIM funds. The AIM VCTs have become a very important participant in the AIM market. And certainly when you talk to the brokers, the ability of the VCTs to invest in new AIM IPOs has been extremely useful for that market. And obviously, it does give you exposure to a subset of the AIM market in a tax-effective way. And then the larger group within VCTs is, as you described, the, the generalist, and they are looking to, to invest in unquoted younger companies. They do have different themes, flavors within that. Some are more technology focused, some are very software focused, bit of healthcare here and there, but you also have VCTs. And I'd say, for example, Pembroke, who will do more in the sort of consumer facing space. So you have got sort of variances within it, but the core is either it's an aim focused VC or it's looking to invest in generalist, unquoted small companies. 
So just to take an example here, I mean, you have an Albion VCT, you have the Albion Development VCT, the Albion Enterprise VCT, and the Albion Technology and General VCT. So, uh, I mean, that's just historical accuracy. So they're all converging on the same strategy, essentially. They could be Albion 1, 2, 3, and 4. But you're absolutely right. Those names were given to them at the time. Some of them have been around for many years. These are long-term products. They had you know, more specific strategies. But what's happened is, as Albion's business has developed and become more focused on software and, and healthcare, so too have our, our portfolios. What impact has the introduction of consumer duty? Has that had any impact on the sector? Has some impact on other fund sectors? Has it had an impact on the VCT sector? I should say the consumer duty is a requirement of the FCA that companies that provide funds have to demonstrate that they're providing value for money on some range of metrics. But uh, what's your feeling about that? What's the answer yeah. to that? Sorry. So we fall squarely under those provisions. So as an industry, we've been going through the same exercise of looking at consumer duty. I think where VCDs have had a, a advantage is that it's always been a retail product. So we have always been very, very focused on consumers by definition being retail. Obviously, there is a new set of rules to operate in. There's a new requirements to calculate value for money and demonstrate value for money. But actually, I think the sector has been well positioned to navigate its way through that because actually, a lot of what consumer duty is trying to achieve, which is all about the consumer, is something we've had to always think about because we've been effectively marketing what is a high-risk investment to retail customers anyway. So it's been very much in our DNA. So we probably have an easier time on this than perhaps some of the other sectors of the investment world. So there haven't been that many which have decided to, what's the expression, put up stumps or call it a day? or No, none at all that I'm aware of. I mean, I wouldn't say painless. That would be doing an injustice to the, the compliance teams that have had to do the work around it. But it's been relatively straightforward to implement for the VCDs. I would be a derelict in my duty if I didn't ask you about fees. I think there's a general perception that the fees on VCTs are higher than they are for, well, they are for conventional investment trusts. And I think you would say the right comparison with most of them is for sort of private equity rather than for uh, conventional equity trusts. But there's also performance fees as well in there, which have not always been popular with investors. So what kind of general statement can we make about the level of fees that are charged? And how far is this all being affected by this ongoing debate about cost disclosure and so on? Is that a factor that's been either deterring or influencing investors uh, recently? So you're absolutely right. It is more expensive to run a venture capital portfolio than a quoted equity portfolio. There is no doubt about that. It is extremely hands-on. So we are investing in young companies. We have to go through a potentially a three-month due diligence process before we make an investment. We are then very involved in those companies post-investment. So often the VC manager will have a board seat and if not, then we will be supporting those companies in, in a variety of ways. So VC managers increasingly have internal portfolio teams that support those companies, helping them with their hiring decision, helping organizational design, helping them go to market, i.e. their sales and marketing strategy. So it looks very different to the investment team that might be investing into highly liquid quoted stocks. And certainly a, a look at the Albion team, you'll see a, a large investment team relative to the funds under management. And that is reflecting the intensive nature of what we do, particularly while that's why we can generate very significant growth. So the fees that are charged are commensurate with the level of investment input that is required to do that. Um, so I think probably you're right. One wants to look at it more alongside sort of venture capital generally and the fees of BCTs. It does obviously vary across BCTs, but in general, it's more akin to what you would see in a venture capital fund generally than perhaps a unit trust, for example. 
So we'll be talking something like in terms just of a sort of published OCR ongoing charge ratio would be something in the region of two and a half percent, something like that. Would that be about right? Yes, of which around two percent is the management fee and the rest is costs of running the VCT, you know, which are listed vehicles, as you know, with that comes quite a lot of compliance and quite a lot of excise. But yeah, two and a half percent would feel about right because that's sort of broad number. And performance fees are normal? Performance fees vary enormously across the industry. And, you know, I think anyone looking at VC wants to look at them individually. And certainly if you look at the album ones, we have hurdles that we have to mostly link to RPI. So they're pretty, pretty high hurdles at the moment and high watermarks. So effectively, if you underperform in one year, you have to make it up. So I think the performance fees do vary. But it's, again, if you look at venture capital more broadly, you know, that is very much part of how the sector operates in terms of remunerating the manager. Well, from what you've said, it all seems to be fairly hunky-dory in the VCT world. The taxes go up and that's good for you to attract more demand. Performance has been poor the last couple of years, but as you explained, the long-term record is there and people aren't selling anyway. So what's worrying you? You must be worrying about something. It can't all be good news. We all know that. There's a lot of risk out there in the world. What's keeping you awake at night? Well, the biggest worry I have is making sure we find the next big thing. So absolutely critical to long-term performance is to be continuously refreshing portfolios with new investments. So the availability of entrepreneurs wanting to raise VCD money is critical. So what worries me is, will we carry on? Will there be that demand for our capital? Will we be able to identify the future winners? Because these are long-term holds. You know, and Within Albion, our typical hold period for investment is around eight years. So we are effectively sowing the acorns uh, that will become the sort of mighty oaks of the future. So that's clearly an absolutely critical thing. So um, getting a feel for the level of expertise of the investment team, how they go about originating those investments, and then how they work with those investments to build them into decent exits of the future is important. So yeah, that's probably what keeps me awake at night more, just making sure that we continue to find those acorns. And I must give you a chance to illustrate how good things can be if everything goes right. And this, of course, is the exception rather rule, I imagine. But uh, you have recently had a very uh, successful investment in a company, I believe it's called Quantexa, which is a fraud prevention business, I believe. Tell us about that. What's been your experience of that? When did you first invest in it? How far has it grown over the years? This is so you give people a chance to salivate over what could happen in the very, very best case in a VCT that's uh, found a really profitable early stage company. So. Absolutely. I mean, what we're here to do is to find what we call the outlier companies, the companies that grow to be big. And you've picked Quantexa, which is a company that we invested in in 2017. When we invested, it was, you know, really a very small company. It employed 30 people. It was selling services. So its software product was in development. So it's properly early stage, but that's the job that we do. That is a business that, as you've spotted, has now grown to be very substantial as employing well over 600 people now operating all the way around the world and amongst particularly for banks. And as you say, it's using uh, data analytics and has always been at the very forefront of AI to do that. But it helps those banks, as you said, identify financial crime. And now it's increasingly being used more broadly in data analytics in other sectors. So it's been very successful. You know, the way it works with, with VCTs is that we support it until it becomes too big for us to support. So I, it's quite rightly at the baton, if you like, starts to get handed over to non-tax efficient investors, uh, but we can continue to be invested. And that's the big benefit of, of VCTs is that we can ride those winners. And Quantex uh, earlier this year raised money from GIC, which is the Singapore Sovereign Wealth Fund. Uh, they came in at a valuation well over a billion pounds. This is becoming one of the big success stories of 
UK technology. So it's a fantastic one to be involved in. And it's nice that we can continue to be invested. And that's a core point to make about obesities is, yes, you're investing in young companies. That's absolutely our job. But those companies get bigger over time. So when you invest in a VCT, you're actually buying a portfolio of companies where you've got very young companies, the acorns, if you like, but you've also got companies as throughout their growth cycle within a diversified portfolio, including some really quite big companies like Quantexa. So often people say VCs only invest in, in very young companies. That's certainly true, but equally well, you've got a whole range of companies at different stages of development. So actually, you're investing in a blend of companies, and that's one of the powerful things of being able to invest on a regular basis into an established VCT. And if I can ask you a loaded question here, if Quantexa was eventually to list on the public market, would you recommend that they uh, list in the US rather than in the UK? That was a very loaded question, Jonathan. So, you know, I'm a great believer in the UK's stock market should be an effective place to raise capital for as you get larger. And I'm a big supporter of that. The decision where a company like Quantexa, or even if they IPO, and that's a decision that hasn't been made and would be made, but we would not be dictating where it slates. It would be a decision made by the board of shareholder base and management. But clearly, they would consider their options, which would be both sides of the Atlantic, I would suspect, that, that no decision has been made. At the moment, we are hard at work building a really exciting company. Bax Vishu uh, runs that business, is doing a fantastic job. It's a portfolio company we're very proud to be associated with. I think it's a great example of, of just how successful UK technology can be. And you know, I'm delighted that it's a VCT that's been a very, very important part of the capital raising journey that that company has seen. Well, that seems to me a very positive note as we come to Christmas to end on, at least. We can all dream of finding the next Quantexa, and I'm sure all your shareholders have wished you well with that one, and indeed for the sector overall. So that was Will Fraser-Allen, the managing partner of Albion Capital, and also the current chair of the Venture Capital Association. Thank you for listening. The Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast is independently produced and edited and is listed on all leading podcast channels. You can also sign up at the website money-makers.co to be notified every time a new podcast is available. Please note these podcasts are provided for educational purposes only and nothing you have heard from any of the speakers should be regarded as constituting investment advice. If you want more news, analysis, interviews and other investment trust content, don't forget to look at the Moneymakers Circle, available now for a modest subscription at the website.